Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Jason H. Karp is the founder and CEO of HumanCo, a mission-driven private holding company using a unique combination of operating experience, evidence-based research, and data science to invest in healthier living. Additionally, Jason is chairman and co-founder of one of my favorite restaurants and favorite wellness brands, Hugh Kitchen and Hugh Products, a healthy lifestyle food company that he created with his wife and brother-in-law. Previously, Jason was in the finance world where he managed over $4 billion and has over 21 years of investment experience in other multi-billion dollar investment funds. Jason decided to close his hedge fund at the end of 2018 to focus his efforts on health and wellness, embracing the belief that improving health is the most effective strategy to increase global prosperity. Amen to that. Lastly, Jason has one of the craziest health stories I've ever heard, almost losing his eyesight in his 20s, which he completely reversed through lifestyle and nutrition choices he made in his everyday life. Jason, welcome. Thank you for having me. So let's start way back when and your personal health journey. So you've had some some health issues to say the least. Let's start there. Yeah, so I I was sick a lot as a kid, but I, I didn't really realize that that uh, it was unusual um, and when I got out of college I quickly got into the sort of work hard play hard mentality of New York City um, and I I was an athlete in college and when I started working I wasn't exercising that much and I was drinking a fair amount of caffeine every morning and I was going out and drinking a lot of alcohol at night and just eating whatever I could uh, during the day. It was a very demanding job. Um, I was a quant at a hedge fund. And within probably the first, it was probably a year and a half, two years into it, when I was about 23, I started getting very sick. uh, And it manifested in a variety of ways. My hair started falling out in clumps. I had plaques uh, all over my, my skin. I had terrible brain fog, um, and the worst thing was was I had uh, double vision, and I was then diagnosed with a degenerative corneal disease, uh, where the various ophthalmologists told me I would be blind by the age of 30, and I had to put my name on a corneal transplant list, and that was very difficult for me, uh, given how young I was, and I refused to accept that diagnosis. And then I had a few other things happen, and, and nobody uh, that I saw, and, and I was at that time was seeing mostly Western-trained traditional doctors, uh, nobody thought that there was really anything I could do about it. And I stumbled upon a doctor who was kind of my savior, and he gave me a lot of blood work and basically saw that I had cortisol levels that were, I think what he said, he'd never seen cortisol levels as high as mine were. And he basically said, listen, I don't know what you're doing, but uh, you're not going to live to the age of 40 unless you change whatever you're doing. And I kind of went back and I I started doing a lot of research on cortisol and I started doing a lot of research on autoimmune conditions, which clearly I had several. 
and this was around 2001, uh, this was during a time when all of these things were very fringy. People didn't really write books about it. People didn't really talk about it. And I was naively optimistic, and I, I stumbled upon some research that basically uh, suggested it was a Harvard Medical Journal that, that showed a high correlation between atopic skin diseases, of which I had several, and this degenerative corneal disease called keratoconus. And I remembered the one time I had kind of eczema to the degree that I did, uh, or psoriasis is what I think it was at the time, was during um, pledging in my fraternity <laughs> when they forced us to stay up late uh, or basically not sleep for three days and just drink beer and not eat anything. Um, it's not good for the skin? No, I didn't, it wasn't good for the skin. And, <laughs> and uh, I just had this naive hypothesis that if I could make my skin condition go away, maybe my eye disease would reverse. And I, I consulted my ophthalmologist, who was this $1,000 a visit, no insurance, arrogant doctor on Park Avenue. And he said, sorry, kid, you can't reverse that eye disease. It's degenerative, but give it a shot. And over the next three months, I basically did what you would now call an elimination diet. <laughs> um, there wasn't a name for it then, but I gave up packaged food. I gave up caffeine. I gave up alcohol. I taught myself how to sleep a regular schedule. I made myself exercise again, just basic things. But the, the biggest kind of change to my protocols were food. And over the course of the next three months, my eye disease reversed and my double vision um, went back to single vision. And I went into the doctor and I said, hey, you got to give me that test again because I think my keratoconus reversed. And they had something called corneal topography which basically measures the surface of your eye. And uh, the, the eye disease that I had, your, your cornea becomes shaped like a cone instead of a sphere. And so they could see it in three dimensions. And he did the exam, and the corneal topography showed that my eye had actually reverted to spherical shape from conical. He actually said out loud in front of me, he said, did I misdiagnose this kid? <laughs> I can't even, like, he was talking to himself, and he, and he told me that he must have misdiagnosed me because in his entire practice, he'd never seen this disease reverse. And from then on, um, so that was late 2001, early 2002, I just had a profoundly different view on Western medicine, a profoundly different view on food as medicine, and just not accepting anything that anyone says without testing it myself. And that just changed my worldview and my perspective on all things. And I've, I've, I've had several kind of smaller relapses of my autoimmune challenges over the years. And I still have a variety of, of issues that manifest from time to time. But it was only until about five years ago when you could easily sequence DNA and look for gene mutations that lead to certain issues that I was able to discover that there were certain reasons why I am the way I am. And now I know how to kind of manage that much better. Wow. Pretty powerful. I've never heard about your eye condition and reversing that. Are you in a medical journal somewhere? You know, it's funny because um, I spoke about this once before. It was for, uh, it was a blurb in Experience Life magazine, I think like six, seven years ago. And a few people reached out to me and uh, I never really spoke too much about it, um, but I'm definitely not in a medical journal, and, and I think the, 
the challenge is for a lot of conditions that, that seem to be accelerating in their frequency for many people is that it's very hard for modern science to do, you know, double-blinded controlled studies on situations like this. And if, if you can't easily prove that food or lifestyle or, or all the things I did to reverse it, if you can't easily prove that in a clinical setting, scientists dismiss it as anecdotal, mm-hmm. um, almost like that's not real. And um, I've definitely told a lot of people who, I've had a handful of people who have keratoconus who've reached out to me and I've given them a protocol to try to help them. And, and I can think of one where he, he wrote me back that he noticed his vision definitely did improve. Wow. So what does wellness look like for you today in terms of nutrition, lifestyle, sleep, supplements, testing, all of that stuff? <laughs> well, it's um, so the before I go into that, basically what, I, what I've discovered my challenges are is that I don't detoxify properly. And common adulterants, chemicals, things in the food, things in the air, things in products like makeup, and lotions, et cetera, I'm just more sensitive to them than the average person. And, and my belief is that all of these things are toxic. And if it takes you uh, or it takes an average person five to 10 years to actually get ill from it, it probably takes me months instead of years. And so I'm a bit of a canary in a coal mine in the sense that you can use me to test stuff. And if I get ill from it, you'll probably get ill from it. It'll just take you a lot longer. And so that that's really the kind of overarching kind of outline to a lot of the things that I do. I do have, uh, you know, some allergies. And, you know, for me, I'm extremely sensitive to exercise and sleep. Uh, both of those things are very positive, um, I think, for everybody, and, and especially for me, and, and food and what I put in my body. But I'm also very sensitive to stress. And, you know, it's, it's never been proven or shown, uh, but anecdotally for me, you know, I find um, stress to be much more potent of, uh, of an inflammatory agent than anything else, including sleep and food. And what I found is that when I've gone through these periods where I try too hard to live perfectly, which is impossible, the stress of it is, is highly counterproductive to everything else and probably offsets the benefits. Um, <laughs> You know, and I've noticed, for example, just, and I'm sure a lot of people listening to this has noticed that, you know, there have been times I've been on vacation where I'm completely relaxed, very happy, sleeping well, but eating probably not ideally, and I'm in perfect health. And then then there's times when I'm doing everything perfectly, but the stress just kind of brings out the worst. And so for food, I'll, I'll go through the different categories in terms of how I think about how I live. Um, For food, I'm generally, I guess what you would call modified paleo. Um, I'm gluten-free. I have a a, a pretty established intolerance to gluten at this point. I do have some grains. I'm extremely strict about adulterants, chemicals, additives, food colorants, preservatives. I don't have any of those things. I generally don't have refined sugar except in ice cream particularly like ice cream and, and all forms of ice cream. So if it's, if it's high-quality ice cream... What's your favorite? My favorite is definitely just is, is Italian gelato. Um, okay. And my wife and I, when we go to Italy, and it's, it's, it's one of the most frequent places we visit, we bring my family, we like to scope out 
like very artisanal, authentic gelato places. Uh, and and, and a, a handful of them actually use cows that are locally sourced and are grass-fed. That's awesome. And so that's my weakness is gelato. But so I generally avoid refined sugar. I actually don't consume caffeine. I don't metabolize caffeine very well. And so I get uh, some issues from caffeine. I generally don't drink alcohol anymore. I have it rarely, but it's it just never seems to be worth uh, what it does to me. Um, I'm not vegan. I, I'm an omnivore. And I would say I, I've noticed some pretty positive benefits from intermittent fasting for myself. So I do intermittent fasting during the week, and then I don't do intermittent fasting on the weekend because I like to eat breakfast with my children. Hot question here at My Buddy Green. How do you define intermittent fasting? Is it 14 hours, or what do you do? My general intermittent is um, uh, I eat between the windows of 12 and 7 or 12 and 8. So, so 16-8. Yeah, 16-8 yeah. is my general. Okay. Um, and I'll, I'll have water uh, when I wake up. Okay. And so that, I, I'd say that generally describes my food philosophy. So it's a modified paleo. I do have some grains. When I have animal product, I, I generally try to make sure that it's as close to wild as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so the beef is grass-fed, grass-finished. The fish is wild. I don't eat canned fish. I don't generally eat organic uh, farmed fish. Um, I think that's, there's no such thing as, as kind of organic farmed fish. There's only wild fish and, uh, same thing with chicken and pork. And, uh, you know, I generally eat all, all kinds of animal product. If, if I think it's sourced well from time to time, if I'm out at a restaurant that looks to be high quality and I know sure. it's not wild, I will have it. But, um, again, I, I think the overarching element here is, you know, I think if you go too restrictive with anything, the stress and becomes stressful. It becomes stressful, and then I'd argue that you're 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 eliminating all the benefits. That- yeah. So my wife and I like to call it kind of like 90-10. You know, ten percent of the time you just kind of sure. have to do what you have to do. And did I leave anything out on? Well, I'm curious. Like, no, I think you got eating. I'm curious on the two other pieces: supplements and then testing. Before I come back to stress and sleep. Okay. Um, supplements. So I'm, I'm generally not a huge fan of a lot of supplements. I think the reductionist approach that we've taken to just try to isolate specific compounds generally doesn't work. I've found in both my own experience as well as just a lot of research that there's an entourage effect with a lot of these things where you actually need the whole plant. Um, or the whole food to, to get the proper absorption of what you're trying to get at. I think there are some notable things that I seem to be deficient in, that when I supplement, I notice the difference. I'm deficient in B12. I used to be deficient in magnesium. I've noticed huge benefits from magnesium and zinc. And I, I'm very sensitive to vitamin D, particularly from sunlight. Um, so those are the only kind of areas where I've noticed a, a real difference. I try to get most of my vitamins and minerals through food. Sure. Sure. What about testing? Um, I am a, a walking guinea pig. Um, (laughs) I, I, uh, I used to test a lot just because I was nervous about new things popping up. And then I've just had some friends, uh, who are both doctors and friends like Dr. Peter Atia, who are big believers in sort of real time measurement on, on, on stuff. And, 
it's kind of addictive to sure. you know to change certain protocols and see what happens to your blood and certain biomarkers and also become stressful yes it also um <laughs> and you know it's it's peter describes me as a hyper responder which means that when he 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 tests certain things on me to see what happens and you know he has a hypothesis of me improving 10 15% above baseline and i tend to improve 100 plus percent so there's something in my metabolism that's just hypersensitive to everything I do. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I've tested everything. I mean, I've tested all the usual tests, um, but then, uh, you know, I've, I've tested my microbiome many times because I, part of my autoimmune condition seems to be related to my lack of diversity in bacteria in my microbiome. And uh, yeah, look, I, I also like when new tests come out, I like trying them just to see what the output looks like. I find one of the challenges as a consumer um, and then also as, a, as an investor is that a lot of the outputs of a lot of these tests are just not intuitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're hard to interpret and they're hard to understand what they even mean. Um, and I think there's a whole business in just, you know, display and making graphical <laughs> I- interfaces better for, for people so they can know what to do with it. 23andMe, I think, has done a good job with like making it fun and playful, but you can't do anything with the data. You, like The real data you have to take to a Peter or, or a functional medicine doctor to really interpret anything that's meaningful. Yeah, although there are some new extensions that you can use online that ingest the 23andMe yeah, raw data. The Genie, uh, I forget the name of There's it. There's one called... Um, uh, Dirty genes, yeah. That basically looks for known kind of genetic mutations. I've done that, but, yeah. but then I got this thing. I'm like, I don't even know what to do with this. Right, right. <laughs> I had to show it to Frank Lipman. I'm like, what do I do with this? <laughs> right, right. There, there's a there's a handful of 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 ones now that um, I think they're a little bit overreaching. There's some that basically test your DNA and tell you what the right diet is for you based on your DNA. Yeah, I think it's it's too early it's to make those yet. those those claims. So let's go back to stress. Yes. So. As I mentioned, you know, some, some would say like you can overtest, it can become stressful. And just in general, how do you manage stress for a guy who, you know, ran a quant hedge fund and a startup and investor and there's stress. And I always say like, you can't eliminate stress. You have to manage it. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think what was interesting for me is I never realized I had stress because I used to think stress was sort of this hyper acute, like you know, waking up on the day of an exam and realizing that you didn't study. Like, I used to think that was stress. Like, people who, like, have panic attacks and they get sweaty and they look visibly disturbed. That, basically, since I was a teenager, I never experienced that kind of stress. Even in the in the markets, and, I, you know, I was trading stocks for 20 years, and I've lost staggering amounts of money on many, many occasions. I never experienced that kind of acute stress. So I always thought like, oh, that's for other people. Um, (laughs) But what I later discovered is that I'm very type A and I'm very perfectionist and I'm the worst critic of myself. And that that creates a level of of kind of internal anxiety that is chronic stress. Um, And I effectively have been redlining my own engine for 20 years, which led to all the elevated cortisol that that first doctor picked up on. And when I started measuring cortisol more frequently and I started going through a lot more testing, I realized that there were certain things that were immensely beneficial for me for lowering kind of that baseline. And I would say that that exercise was, was incredibly important for me. Um, and I, I didn't even realize because I was an athlete my whole life until I graduated college 
that I probably ended up saving myself inadvertently because I was exercising so often as a, as a competitive athlete I did, that I didn't even do it as therapy. I just did it because I was an athlete. And, and it was only until I stopped doing it that I realized like I needed that. Sleep is immensely important for me. If I don't get, if I get sub seven hours, it has a huge toll on me. And then, you know, over the, I'd say the last 15 years, I learned a lot of new methods like biofeedback. I've, I've done enough biofeedback training that I can actually feel when my cortisol is elevated now. Mm. And before I knew about meditation, I had taught myself breathing exercises and ways to just lower my kind of base rate of cortisol without it formally being meditation. I started formally meditating about six, seven years ago in various forms, you know, TM and, and breath work and just being present and such like and stuff like that. And um, I found that helpful. I, I found that a lot of times when I meditate, I actually fall asleep, um, <laughs> which is more of a sign of, of sleep latency and my need to sleep more. But, you know, for me, I think a lot of it is also just just keeping things in context. You know, I mean, having been through uh, a scare like I was where several doctors thought I was I was dying, when you come out of that and you're healthy, you just look at life differently. You just have a different perspective on everything. And, and I think I've done a much better job in these last 10, 15 years just keeping things in context and not sweating the small stuff and and just realizing that, you know, today could suck, but tomorrow's a new day and you get through it. And this stuff is, it's trite and it, it tends to, you know, show up on, on calendars and things, but it really, it's really important. And I'd say probably the most beneficial thing has been the quality of my relationships. My wife is terrific. You know, my kids are, are amazing and I have a great support system around me with some great friends and people I can actually talk to and tell them when I'm depressed and tell them when I'm not feeling great. And I, I think community and having loving relationships around you is probably one of the single most things, most important things to keep stress at bay. hundred percent. And you can't really measure that stuff. Can't measure. That's why it. I love it. To me, it's a blend of all the data and the testing. And then as I like to call it, like a little bit of the blue zones. You know, strong relationships, moving, enjoy, you know, enjoying food with friends, the stuff that's kind of like, yeah, no, one, no one's, no one's doing a lab on you while that's happening real time at a dinner party where you're having, or a vacation when you're just having a blast. It's meaningful. It's, it, it's amazing how much science we try to apply to this. And, and you just go to places, you know, one of the reasons we love going to Italy uh, and we go to France in the summers is, is they're just much happier. You know, they definitely don't work as hard. They're definitely not as efficient or, quote, productive. And, you know, their economies show that. Um, but life, you know, you realize isn't just about productivity and money. And, you know, they enjoy their food. They enjoy their leisure. They enjoy their family. And on the surface, you would think, and, you know, obviously this has been studied, you know, one of the greatest ones was the French paradox where they they appear to eat less healthy than we do, mm -hmm. but they're, but all their markers for health and longevity are superior to us. And it's sort of staring us in the face. Right. That, you know, this is, this is simple stuff. So you mentioned your wife. So your wife, your brother-in-law and you are the founders of one of my favorite brands, Hugh. And it started with uh, Hugh Kitchen, the, the restaurant in New York, and you've got 
lots of great consumer products now, chocolate bars, crackers, all that. Let's let's talk about the, <laughs> the, the inspiration and how that happened. I'm guessing you're starting to eat. You, you start, you're, you're going to the supermarket and you're saying, like, where, or you're going out to eat and you're saying, where's, I can't, I can't eat anything. Yeah, no, it's, it's a funny story. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, I, I starting, you know, as early as, as 2002, 2003, I started trying to find books on uh, ways to eat to improve, you know, performance and your health. And, and I was approaching it two ways. One, I just, I always wanted to be kind of better. Um, so a lot of it was self-improvement focused. And the other was, was I wanted to be just healthier and, and not have to worry about what I had gone through back in 2001, 2002. My brother-in-law, my wife's brother, um, he wa- he didn't have the autoimmune issues that I do, but he really started getting into those uh, types of books as well. Uh, he was very focused on productivity. He was very focused on feeling better, um, looking better, performing better. You know, a lot of this sort of self-improvement movement um, that's been going on with guys like Tim Ferriss and Dave Asprey. Um, and he he picked up one of the books that, that I particularly liked, a book by Dr. Mark Hyman uh, called The Ultra Mind Solution, which was one of Hyman's first books. And one of his 11 New York Times bestselling. Yes, one of his I think his he's many. got 11, 11 and, New York Times. And this is back, call it circa, I don't know, 2008, 2009. And um, he was in real estate at the time. I was at a hedge fund. And we would geek out on this stuff. And, and he would come back and talk about it. And we would talk about all these different hacks that we figured out. And and we just had a blast. And, and what we realized uh, through a lot of this, this discourse was there, even in New York City, there wasn't a place where you could trust everything in the food. At the time, you know, you, you had uh, what felt like it was a very bifurcated type of market where on the one end of the spectrum, you kind of had the very high-end gourmet dining experience where it was farm to table and they told you the name of the pig before you ate it and he came from this place, you know, in, in the farm and we're cutting him fresh right here. And Sounds like Blue Hill. Yes, and, uh, <laughs> and I like Blue Hill a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and that was $150, $200 a person, and it's just not approachable. And then on the other side of the spectrum, um, you had these raw vegan, very, Swim. these very, <laughs> these very, um, bohemian, you know, very idealistic places where I just didn't think the food was good. I mean, I think if you had to eat raw vegan, it was good, but I think relative to, what most people needed to do. I thought it was polarizing. And, and there was also like a, like a condescension to that style of eating of, mm-hmm. you know, how dare you not eat this way? And do you realize what you're doing to the earth if you don't eat this way? And I just, I, that didn't resonate with me because I, I know that people have different preferences and, and we didn't want to be like preachy or dogmatic. Um, and so we, uh, Jordan and I, my brother-in-law, we just decided that we wanted to create a place where people could eat like humans were meant to eat. And we were very inspired um, by the ancestral eating uh, philosophies. You know, we'd done a lot of research and reading on kind of more primitive diets. And, and I was fascinated with a lot of anthropological studies on looking at different tribes all over the world uh, where they actually, you know, it's, it's fascinating because there's a lot of... of uh, Aboriginal tribes that they can find in, in different places that are generally untouched by modern society. 
and they eat wildly different things, you know, from tribes that are in, in uh, you know, northern Alaska that survive on whale blubber to tribes that eat mostly cow meat and cow blood to tribes that eat pure vegan. And they all have surprisingly good health metrics. And none of the modern ailments that we have, none of the autoimmune issues that we have. Uh, and the one common thread between all of them was that the food is extremely unprocessed and it's as close to nature as possible. Whether it was all meat or all plants or all fat, the common thread was there was no refined sugar and it was highly unprocessed and it was as close to kind of nature as you could be. And, and so we had this belief that people don't eat like humans anymore and, uh, and you see it in all the health data. And for me, you know, it was right around the time I just had my first child and I was very concerned about the childhood obesity epidemic and it was something that really bothered me about childhood diabetes um, which used to be called, uh, you know, type 2 diabetes used to be called adult onset diabetes because kids didn't used to get it. And so, like, how is all this happening? And it's accelerating. And, and so our overarching thesis was people need to eat like humans again or like humans were meant to eat. Um, and that's why we called it Hue. Um, and it was a totally unproven business model. We were going to source best quality ingredients in a fast, casual setting uh, where we, the whole restaurant is gluten-free, dairy-free, refined sugar-free, no chemicals, no additives, and then even little things that very few restaurants do. Like we don't use refined industrial processed salt. We use unrefined sea salt. Um, we don't use highly refined industrialized seed oils, canola oil, sunflower seed oil, etc. We only use olive oil, coconut oil, uh, some avocado oil, and... Like little things on the fringes that we knew that nobody would care about. But, Water in the bathroom. But we would. <laughs> um, and, and we were very forthright in saying, we think this matters. This matters to us. And we think you should care about it. And so, you know, we put that up on our walls and on our front of our restaurant, which was in Union Square. And um, Jordan quit his job as a real estate development person. Uh, and I... Uh, my job was to basically be the chairman and to fund it. Um, and we kind of spent, a, we spent two years basically incubating this idea. And we actually de- toyed with the idea of bringing in outside investors. Um, and we didn't. And the reason we didn't is because I was concerned that we wouldn't stay true to the mission if we had outside investors who didn't fully understand the mission. I never wanted to have an investor say to me, hey, Jason, you know, I know you use organic free-range chicken that's sourced from this farm, but if you just substitute in free-range chicken, which is half the price, <laughs> the customer will never know the difference and will make more profit margin. I never wanted to have that conversation. And we were obviously nervous that the business wouldn't work. And we didn't really look at it like this was going to be a home run or anything. You know, I was looking at it, I mean, as a professional investor, restaurants are notoriously terrible businesses. And so I was kind of just hoping that we would break even, maybe make a little bit, have a place that's just amazing, where you could trust everything in it, the food was delicious, and I could have kind of what I wanted, you know, multiple days a week <laughs> and not like worry about it. That would have been kind of a win uh, for me. And what happened was, was the, the first five months were an epic disaster. You know, not many people were showing up. A lot of people just didn't understand the concept. They, you know, they couldn't understand, like, what's the, what's the value of having, you know, pole-caught tuna instead of just generic kind of uh, 
cheap bodega style tuna fish and why is it more money and why you know just lots of like why don't you use canola oil who cares and why don't you use industrialized ingredients or put msg to make it taste better etc etc and um and then just something happened and like people started to really like it and in month six the panic stopped um uh in terms of the the cash drain and it just started to really uh take off and i think a lot of people uh, really started to respect the fanaticism of me and Jordan. Um, they realized that, like, if if these guys live this way, and my wife got very involved um, a little bit later. I left her out because in the beginning she thought me and Jordan were nuts. Um, <laughs> and then eventually, you know, she, she started to read some of the stuff that I was reading. And, um, and then when we had our daughter, she became fanatical also about saying, wait a minute, I don't want to put this shit in my... Kids' <laughs> brand new body, um, and so you know that's how the restaurant got going. And then you know, right around the same time as the launch of the restaurant, we were making a lot of grain-free cookies, and we we realized we wanted to have chocolate chips in these things, and we couldn't find any chocolate that met our specs. And all the chocolate we could find had dairy in it, had refined sugar in it, had soy in it, had chemicals in it, preservatives, emulsifiers, and we just said is it possible to make chocolate without all this stuff? And, uh, you know, over the, you know, the, the probably like a six month period, um, we spent a lot of time and, and my brother-in-law was kind of the mastermind of this process to try to create chocolate that actually tasted great, but didn't have all the shit in it. And what was amazing was at the time, you know, it was similar to the, to the story I gave about the, the two types of healthy restaurants. Like you had, really good chocolate but it was filled with crap mm -hmm. and then you had healthy chocolate but it was like it tasted, tasted like cardboard it tasted awful yeah you know we eventually developed chocolate chips that we thought tasted great and uh then we had the idea to make them into bars and jordan really ran with it and we were able to make uh just amazing chocolate bars that we only sold in the restaurant almond butter puff quinoa we only first, sold it yeah. in the restaurant and then by kind of a stroke of luck, a person from Whole Foods came in one day and said, can we sell these in the Columbus Circle location? And we said, sure, I guess. And then that's how the, that's how the Hue Products business started. That's awesome. I remember the chocolate bars. Game-changing. It's like, wow, these are good. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so I'm, we'll come back to where Hue is going in the future, but I, I want to go first to, you know, in this journey, so... Huge part of the journey and, you know, getting food right and then getting your home right. So people may not know, you literally have the healthiest home in New York City. That's what the Wall Street Journal called it. And I, I think it's so interesting because, you know, we all talk about like, okay, it's, it's, it's movement, it's food, and a lot of people get that. Then you think home. And people want to make their home healthy, but it's confusing. They don't know what to do. And just walk us through that process and why it was so important to you and what you learned. Yeah. So um, I think it's very difficult. Um, you know, I, I think, and it follows the same trajectory as why food became really unhealthy, is that there's, there's this obvious desire to make all of these things more affordable to the masses and make it more uh, easier and more accessible to everybody. And in doing that with housing, with food, 
you know, a lot of the companies who make the stuff that goes into food and housing, and I know it's weird to compare the two, but I think they have a similar trajectory, are run by public companies. And so if they think, okay, well, how do we create enough wood flooring for enough people uh, that everyone can have what looks like on the surface good flooring? And, you know, in the same way of how do we make food last two years and can sit on the shelf and can travel across the country in tons of, of oscillations of heat and temperature. And the answer is, is that you can, you can do this through massive amounts of processing, massive amounts of chemicals and engineering. And I think to some degree, those, those uh, kind of scientific progressive methods are good as they have been with like airplanes, for example. But when we are on the other side uh, as human beings and we're sort of consuming these things indirectly in the case of where you live and directly in the case of food, there's a lot of side effects. For example, you know, there was a, uh, there was a very scandalous situation that happened with uh, a public company, I won't mention its name on your podcast, but you can Google it, um, where their wood flooring, uh, they're one of the largest wood flooring companies in the country. They were using formaldehyde um, in the flooring, and it was off-gassing, and it was causing a lot of problems with a lot of people. And they were inhaling formaldehyde fumes in what they thought was their nice new home and with a nice, what appeared to be a, 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 fl- a nice floor. And, you know, you, they discovered that the, that the wood flooring wasn't even wood. It was, a, it was a composite of a lot of just chemicals and fillers with like a plastic coating on the top that looked like wood. And they used formaldehyde for some reason. I don't even know what. But what you discover is that, is that a lot of elements in modern housing are filthy. And for me, I'm very sensitive to chemicals. I'm very sensitive to off-gassing. I'm sensitive to dust. I'm sensitive to mold. And I'm sensitive to things, uh, certain kind of chemicals or adulterants that are in a lot of drinking water, etc. So I had to go down this journey of sort of figuring out what parts of the home are the dirtiest. And some of it's in the material. And some of it's just in sort of how you design your house. And in terms of the design of the house, for example, I have kind of traditional seasonal allergies. My kids do too. I'm very sensitive to dust. I have a dust allergy. Not putting things in like heavy carpeting, drapery, uh, dramatically reduces the dust load in your house. I did not know that. Yeah, because it because basically what you still have to vacuum regularly, but basically dust is a is a combination of dirt and uh, skin cells that basically shed off of you um, and bacteria and. When you have a lot of nooks and crannies, whether it's in cracks in the floor or it's in high-piled carpet or it's in drapery, the dust has lots of places to sit and live. And it's also where dust mites live as well, which I'm very allergic to. So the less kind of surface area that exists, the less dust, dust mites, um, and buildup you have. And so our apartment, for example, we have no drapery in the entire apartment. We actually have almost no carpeting in the entire apartment. We chose to basically have no like cracks and nooks and even our our wood flooring, and I'll get into the materials in a second, but our wood flooring, you know, they're wide planks. They have just like a little bit of of an indent, you know, where the planks kind of meet. And all of our blinds are basically blackout shades on a track uh, where no dust uh, can accumulate. So our, our entire apartment is, a, is actually hypoallergenic. Wow. 
So materials, I'm curious, like wood, concrete, what, which materials are... Yeah, so wood is the most problematic. Wood and the, and the sealants and the glues and the paints are the most problematic if you care about this stuff. Most wood, uh, as I said, uh, is not real wood. It's composite, and it's, and it's filled with a lot of chemicals that, that off-gas, sometimes for, for like a year. That's just insane. Yeah, um, and it's, it's, it's the super majority of the product that's out there. And the reason is, and again, like, you know, we can debate about whether this is affordable for everybody, but we chose wood sourced from specific origins where it's real wood. Um, and unfortunately, real wood is much more expensive than fake wood and chemically treated wood. And so we made sure that we sourced real wood from uh, countries where they're sort of known for the integrity of their wood. And then for our glues, our sealants, and our paints, there's a very common feature that most of those things have called volatile organic compounds or VOCs. Yeah. And uh, a lot of people actually have real sensitivities to VOCs. And, and I didn't figure it out for myself until I learned it the hard way. Um, it can give you migraines. It can really, it can in- interfere with your sleep. And, and sometimes these things, it's called off-gassing, where the VOCs are kind of leaching out of the materials for weeks or months at a time. Like you can have headaches for months. And I moved into an office one time where they didn't care about any of this stuff. And it was, it, it was terrible for me for, for probably a month and a half. So we made sure that we used non-VOC uh, glues, sealants, and paints, which, again, are all more expensive than the traditional. Um, we put in a, 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 a pretty sophisticated water filtration system that not only filters the water for drinking, it also filters the water for bathing um, and showering. I'm a big believer in filtered water, particularly in places where the drinking water is known to be on the dirtier side. New York water is not clean. It has plenty of problems in it. And when you hear the stories of it's clean drinking water, I mean, it's clean relative to stuff that will send you to the hospital. Um, But, you know, drinking water shouldn't have chlorine in it, um, which most drinking water, public drinking water has to try to prevent pathogens from growing. There's just a lot of stuff that kind of makes its way through the filtration, and water's not something I want to really mess around with. Right. Um, we also have probably the most uh, unique controversial feature in our apartment, which my wife busted my balls over. Because I'm fascinated with sleep and getting better sleep, and I've struggled with sleep for most of my adult life, you know, there's, there's been a lot of research in the last five years on, on melatonin secretion and not having blue light at night. And so we found this company that historically had only done commercial applications. Um, We were the second residential installation that they'd ever done, which was kind of a problem, um, and and we paid for it dearly. But basically, it's a lighting system that links to the circadian rhythm of the day, and it it has an infinite spectrum of light in every bulb. And in the morning, you know, like the night shift feature on your phone, in the, the night shift feature on, on the phone for those listening, basically as, uh, at a certain time of, of evening, it cuts the blue light out of the iPhone. Um, and studies have shown that, that having too much blue light later in the day basically prevents melatonin secretion from happening. And so it's harder to go to sleep, which is why they tell you not to watch TV or use your computers or use your phones late, late at night. And so what this lighting system does is it actually tries to approximate the actual light spectrum of, of sunlight. And so there's much more blue light in the morning. And as the day goes on, and it's linked to the atomic clock, as the day goes on, 
the blue light fades out and then it moves into more red, warmer lights. And installing this was was sort of a ludicrously absurd expense that my wife was not in favor of. And, uh, you know, it works now and it works great. And uh, I really like having it, but it, it's, uh, it's, it was definitely a controversial feature that I think, you know, helped so, with the apartment. So I love the first tip tidbit on the, the the carpeting and the drapes like what are what are the other sort of like for the average person listening is they you know live in an apartment in new york or la or wherever they are like what are like the couple things that like if you can do it they're easy to do and to look at is it that that's one what else should people like look for you know I, i'd say that um uh vacuuming regularly makes a big difference yeah. um a lot of stuff grows on, on kind of the microscopic level if you're not cleaning stuff regularly you know i'm sensitive to mold and and so airing out your showers um as opposed to sort of leaving if you have a if you have a shower that has a shower door where it can get really kind of foggy in there and heat up and leaving that closed um just a lot of simple things like that i think make a big difference where you're preventing kind of allergens from growing or mold from growing and you know even you know little tricks like you know, pets are problematic for people who have allergies. Yep. That's sort of a, a a known thing not to do. But if you're going to have pets, find the ones that don't shed. Yep. Um, we we uh, we love pets, and uh, we're uh, we have a a dog who uh, who doesn't shed, so that that makes a, a nice difference. Um, you know, and and then I'd say like just you know, obviously um, on the lighting thing, you can buy bulbs now that don't have blue light in them. Um, and you don't really notice a difference during the day. Uh, they're not necessarily dim. Um, they make bulbs now that are smart bulbs that link to your phones where you can, particularly for children, children are hypersensitive to blue light. Uh, and so they make, they make some bulbs now that are, that are totally reasonable that you can put in your kids' lamps that doesn't have the blue light so it's easier for your kids to go to bed. And then I'd also say just generally dimming. Right. So when it gets nighttime, you know, like six, seven o'clock, my kids go into their rooms. The first thing I'll do, even though the 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 lighting system is doing its part, is I'll 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 dim them even further, and I think that really helps with sleep, just sort of setting a mood. Um, and then for stress, I, you know, I, I think peaceful music is very helpful. Yeah. Um, it's helpful for while you're eating. It's helpful for just relaxing, and so just having kind of a good playlist of relaxing music i think is just great for overall stress reduction i love it i I have one more specific material question i'm very curious about concrete and wood is concrete better than wood yeah for allergies it certainly is yeah yeah so you see a lot of that with like modern minimalist because essentially what i love about what you're saying essentially it's like clean minimalist living it is it is and and um you know things like bath mats are a, are, can be a real problem, right? So anything that can get a lot of moisture and has fabric can create a lot of, of unwanted allergens. Um, and so like having a carpet in your bathroom is, is like a disaster um, from an allergen perspective because there's a ton of moisture in there. It's right. always wet, et cetera. So I think the more minimalist definitely is, it's better for uh, these types of issues. I love it. I'll come back. I could talk to you about okay. the home forever, but we'll, we'll move. I'm, I'm fascinated by by that. I'm going to move on to the the macro and the micro. So, as someone who's obviously passionate about wellness personally, uh, who's on the cutting edge, uh, 
part of a you know cr- created a great brand uh, and an investor. Where do you see wellness going? Like at the highest level, like what do you see in the macro, the high, the you know the trends that are here to stay, and then let's go to like the micro, like what's exciting to you personally? And well, I think you know I've been very fortunate because a lot of my own health journey and my whole canary in the coal mine metaphor has made me, uh, I think, a good investor in this space because I pick up on problems before the average person does because of my own health problems, and so. I think the biggest overarching, uh, or the or, or kind of the biggest theme that I think is 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 really underlying the investment opportunity right now is just is transparency and awareness. The 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 younger demographics, the younger generations, the millennials, the Gen Zs, even the the kind of Gen Xers, which is I think technically what I am. Everyone's starting to read a lot more labels. They're starting to be more skeptical about the establishment in terms of not just accepting it and eating it or drinking it or putting it on your body. And, and I also think that taking care of yourself has now become cool and it's not fringy anymore. I mean, when I first had to start dealing with some of this stuff 20 years ago, like I was a freak and, and, (laughs) and people made fun of me and it was, it was very difficult in certain settings. You know, if you went to a bar 20 years ago and didn't drink, it was really weird, especially if you were a single guy in New York City. I mean, it was very difficult relative to now where, sure. you know, not drinking is acceptable and cannabis is now perceived as a, as a alternate uh, acceptable source of, of kind of, of a vice. So um, I, I think this is a very powerful wave uh, that's happening uh, with the younger uh, generations. And when you combine... You know, social media, which which provides the social proof that this stuff is cool. Um, people actually feel better. They they look better. And and there's now a pride in almost a connoisseurship um, in in oh, have you tried this? You know, this is a great new product. It doesn't have X Y Z in it. And so that's here to stay. And the and the beauty I think of of this as a as a health as a theme, health and wellness. The beauty of this is that there's just a tremendous amount of of tailwind because people don't go back. It's kind of like the matrix where once you realize how toxic, you know, some of the food that we grew up with is, you never go back to it. Right. And, and, and that's what makes it great because it's not a fad. Um, and people actually change their habits and that creates real durability you know, and, and for me, I, I think the biggest opportunity in what we're doing with, with my new business is called HumanCo, which is a, a mission-driven holding company, basically taking a lot of the same philosophy and ethos that we did with Hugh, and Hugh is, is primarily in what we'll call healthy snacking, is to take that same approach, same fanaticism, same philosophy, and apply it to other sectors that aren't healthy snacking. I think there's a lot of white space and there's, there's a real need for better products, better ingredients that actually are good products. And I still think that there's just a tremendous amount of stuff out on the market that might have good ingredients, but the product isn't particularly good mm-hmm. or the opposite. Or you think it's a good product, but they're really still putting in a lot of crap to try to make it sellable. 
So within the way I think about categories, so okay, started with food, makes sense, goes in, goes in the body, taste it. Now, beauty is very exciting, a lot of great up-and-coming beauty, non-toxic beauty brands. We talked about home a bit. I'm curious if we go with food, like what, what do you think is interesting within food? And then I'm also curious, what other categories are we not talking about that are ripe for disruption? So I, I think within food, there's 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 a lot. <laughs> there's a lot of areas to go. I, I, I think my biggest issue is that I don't think there's a lot of products that are what what we tend to call like epic. And, you know, Jordan and I are really fanatical about when, when we create something at Hue as a product, it has to be binge-worthy. It has to be something <laughs> that you actually are like, I'm going to eat so much of this, I'm going to get sick. And I'm going to obsess over this. And uh, because it's, it's a very simple rule, but, you know, if you want to develop something that you think other people will like, you have to be obsessed with it first. And there's just, there's a lot of areas where... I think the products are like meh, and you know it's it's a little bit for I, I, unfortunately I think for for competitive reasons I I'd prefer not to go into too many categories sure. because we're going to probably be investing and, and incubating in a few areas like that, but you know I'll give you an area that that we're 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 not going into where I I see a, a fair amount of of uh, challenge is is you know baby food is still mm-hmm. there's there's a few players who've kind of come out. Uh, Once Upon a Food, uh, Plum Sold to Campbell's Soup. Those were, you know, kind of the, the pouch approach. I've seen some interesting companies recently where, you know, their their philosophy is that, is that, you know, baby food isn't meant to be puree. That prior to Gerber, you know, there were babies who ate food. They didn't just breastfeed and they were eating, you know, solid food with their hands. Granted, it was much smaller pieces and you know, I think baby food is still an area where there's a lot of opportunity for coming up with uh, a more trustworthy version of kind of what Gerber was in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. I still think it's it's kind of a polarizing space where most of the baby food is just mush or, or just pureed stuff as opposed to effectively adult dishes that are just ground up much more finely that allow a baby to actually eat it. Right. Uh, without it being like kind of through a straw. And I, I also think that there's just a lot of categories, if you look at, at the kind of the big food categories, where there's a lot of better for you products. And better for you is a term that the industry uses. And I find it to be humorous because it's not good for you. It's just better for you than the crap. Um, and that's why they call it better for you. It's amazing. And I, I still think that there's a lot of categories where they haven't figured out how to make good for you products that either taste good or are economic. Yeah, right? or shelf-stable. Yeah, because yeah, exactly. most of the good-for-you stuff is ridiculously expensive or it doesn't last. Yeah. So I think that's a, that's a, that's a huge area. So what about outside of food? Um, we're looking at a lot of areas. You know, I, I think um, cannabis still has a lot of opportunity, which is another area I've been pretty heavy in from an investment perspective, where a lot of the cannabis applications are still pretty dirty. Um, you know, a lot of heavy metals in the heating elements and a lot of the oils are cut, uh, with butane and a lot of them have propylene glycol in them, which we don't really know what that does to us. If you aerosolize it and inhale it, it's the same problem with Juul. One of my largest investments is a company. It's basically going to be the first, uh, ultra clean vaporizer. 
it hasn't hit the market yet. It's coming out in August. Um, I actually, it's the first cannabis company I joined the board of because I'm so passionate about what they're doing. Um, it's called Airgraft. And I've actually had heavy metals poisoning. And I think some, of, yeah. Uh, and, and some of it, again, this is part of my problem. Um, but, you know, a lot of people want to vaporize CBD. Um, and it's a nice way to take CBD. And you are in, in most of the devices that are out there where you could vaporize CBD, uh, devices like, like the PACs, they use uh, heating elements that are filled with heavy metals. There's cadmium, mercury, and lead every time you mm-hmm. take a puff. And their argument is, well, it's better than cigarettes. Um, <laughs> it's not a really good argument. That's like comparing syphilis to you know, right. another terrible disease. You don't want either of those things. And so I think there's a, there's a big opportunity for, you know, the mission of what we're doing at HumanCo is we're basically trying to humanize consumables. So anything that you consume, I think there are a lot of verticals where there's cleaner versions of it that people haven't either figured out or they just don't even realize it's dirty. And I mm-hmm. think in the case of cannabis, we're probably two or three years away from people realizing like, oh, wow, this first generation of stuff we were happy using it to well, get. Yeah, it's just insane that you walk around New York. There's CBD everywhere, and is like, where is it from? All the things you pointed out, like, what the hell's in it? Am I getting high? Am I not getting high? Heavy metals? It's just the wild west. It's insane. Yes, and, and, the, and the opportunity is huge. So it's just it's, it's like a gold rush. Yes, yes. But there's a lot of like like any gold rush. You're going to have some winners and some losers and some real companies and some fake ones. But as a consumer, it's like I don't understand anything. Right. It's it's yeah. And it's, the government doesn't know what to do. Correct. It's very confusing. <laughs> a lot of money there. It's very confusing. Um, and and I think what what we're trying to do on our end is just, you know, from an investment perspective, we only want to invest or be part of companies where the trust is first and the profit is second, not the other way around. Right. I love that. So last thing on trends, like, is there a trend that? you think you're really bleeding edge early on that like is really interesting, exciting within wellness that people aren't? I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. I spoke about the, the, the cannabis thing. Cause I, I would have said that as my answer. I think that's really bleeding edge. I think you, we're going to learn in the next year. Um, you know, I, I, I just, I could talk for hours about the problems of, of jewel and, and the e-cigarette stuff mm-hmm. that's going on. But I, I just think that there's a oh I'll, I'll tell you one that's highly controversial and I'm sure you'll you'll enjoy this for a, a podcast. Um, I, I'm very much in favor of of sustainability and and doing things that sort of improve uh, what's going on with this planet. But there's a bit too much of a focus on sustainability at any cost, and I think a lot of people currently are conflating things that are better for the earth but are actually not healthy. I know exactly where you're going to go. Um, and, and I've had a number of discussions with some people, quite heated discussions, but there's a, the plant-based meat movement is, 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 there definitely needs to be some solutions for mass production of meat, cattle in particular, in terms of the greenhouse emissions and, and all the problems that, that are associated with raising, you know, mass amounts of cattle. It's a huge problem. But Creating, um, uh, there's sort of two branches that are going on right now, and, and one of them just went public, uh, Beyond Meat, which I believe has like a, somewhere between a 5 and $7 billion market yeah. cap. Um, the ingredients of Beyond Meat are abhorrent. The second ingredient in that is canola oil, 
which is highly refined, highly inflammatory. Um, multiple elements of the protein that go in that are highly genetically modified. Um, it, it is not even remotely a health food. And people are evangelizing it and, and extrapolating that this could take over everything. Um, it's definitely good for cattle, but it is not healthy. Um, and, and conflating health and sustainability is a big problem. Um, so I'd say, you know, developing products that are sustainable, but also healthy for human beings right. is that should not be bleeding edge, but the fact that I'm thinking about that seems sure. to be bleeding edge. Did right you now. read the article in the journal the other day about, uh, it was a good, a good little piece to summarize that they interviewed some people, some fast food customers around why they're liking the, the, the burger you mentioned some burgers and they were pointing out it wasn't healthy. Exactly what you're saying. And then it was like, I don't want it to be healthy. I want something that tastes like a burger that they want. It's like, is this the new fast food? Yes. Where they don't care about the health, but they care. It's okay, better for the planet. It tastes good, and I don't really care. I'm not eating this for health reasons. Hey, look, I mean, that's... It, I it, thought it was really interesting. I'm like, I didn't think about it that way. If you go into it eyes wide open, and, and you know, there's a, a very popular vegan fast food restaurant called By Chloe. Sure. Um, and uh, you It's know, fun. It's great. I've been there. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, great. A, yeah. It's, it's, it's a great product. It tastes great. It's not remotely yeah. healthy. And I think if people go into it eyes wide open and saying, look, I'm doing this because I want to save cattle and I want to help the world and I know this is not good for me, then all power to you. Right. But I, from a lot of the stuff I've read and the bull case I've read on why Beyond Meat could be a multi-billion dollar company sustainably, it's it's about this being like a good for you product. Not, yeah, it's not. It's not just the sustainability. So right. I, I think, you know, you have to remember that like Coca-Cola is vegan. Oreos are vegan, you know, <laughs> cocaine is vegan. Like there's a lot of things that are vegan. It doesn't, you know, you just have to kind of keep it in context. So uh, last question. So one of the things when we first met, we bonded over our affinity for the city of Austin, which you're moving to. Yes. So let's talk about Austin and why you love Austin and, and why you're going there. So I recently retired from the hedge fund business after 20 years. And um, I don't necessarily need to be in New York anymore. I've been here for 20 years, uh, 21 years now. Austin uh, came to me in a variety of ways. I have several friends there who've been kind of nudging me to go there. You know, I think from a business perspective, there's two primary reasons. One is Austin is one of the meccas for health and wellness and entrepreneurship. Um, they have a tremendous entrepreneurial environment there. A lot of young people, a lot of businesses, both tech and consumer being built right now. Um, and then a lot of established brands there. Whole Foods is headquartered there. So all of my activity going forward, or, or the majority of it, is going to be focused on health and wellness invent, investing and health and wellness philanthropy. And Austin is just a great place for that. They also have no state and city taxes. Um, so there's a very large difference between New York City and Austin for that. It's much more warmer weather. My wife and I and my kids are, are outdoorsy people. You know, we really believe in, in movement and physical activity. And it, it's a city that seems to be much more oriented around lifestyle and, and kind of physical wellness. And so there's that. And, and we have a lot of friends who live there. My first cousin lives there. And 
and my wife and I were ready for a change. Just the access to nature is amazing there. There's like a park, you got the Greenbelt, Barton Springs, Lady Bird Lake. It's just, you got parks, there's like everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And I'd say one other thing, which which is like, uh, you know, it, it's sad to say this, but people are just really happy there. <laughs> like, like, I just noticed that a lot, you know, maybe because I was in finance for 20 years, which is inherently a miserable profession, but the happiness is so odd and observable when you're there that you sort of wonder like is new york an anomaly or is that an anomaly i I can't quite tell but just surrounding myself with that positive energy just seems like a good decision i love it i love it jason carp thanks so much thanks for having me 